one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World and Kennedy Center honoree Judith Jamison is unstoppable and unforgettable. The legendary dancer originated Alvin Ailey's most enduring solo work, Cry, and then was hand-selected by Ailey himself as his successor. The artistic director of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater for over two decades before assuming the title of artistic director emerita, Judith Jamison sees a deep responsibility in dancers and their work. There was an aspiration that you had every day, every time. You got on stage, you had a responsibility to your fellow dancers and, of course, to Mr. Ailey. It was about lifting an audience and making them feel lifted in spirit and mind and body. You're listening to Moving Moments, the podcast that explores the dance world's most accomplished and groundbreaking artists. I'm your host, Alicia Graf Mack, Dean and Director of Dance at the Juilliard School. During each episode, you'll hear me talk with some of my closest friends and most trusted colleagues as we sit down to hear about their creative process and how they are changing the dance world on and off the stage. There is no way to measure the incredible impact you've had on the world as an artist and leader. I wonder how many young dancers felt more assured in their dreams simply because of your presence in the field. Do you ever think about your legacy in terms of the lives that your light has touched? Have I thought about that? I think about that less and less because the less I'm out there, the less I'm seen or heard or anything else. And every now and then somebody will come up to me and go, I saw you, Dan, back then, 40 years ago. And I'm going like, okay. But then all of a sudden, a young person will come up to me and go, my grandmother or my mother showed me blah, blah, blah. And, of course, I direct them to the company as it is now. You know what I'm saying? So that brings me joy. It's amazing, this evolution of how it doesn't revolve around me. <laughs> it revolves around the dance world and how we've all have to continue to lift it up regardless of what state we're in. Mm -hmm. Keep reminding me, because I forget. <laughs> I forget. I appreciate that very, very much, though. I grew up with this poster of you in Alvin Ailey's Cry hanging on my wall because my mother wanted to make sure that I was surrounded by images of tall professional dancers. And of course, there is no one more statuesque than you. This shot is iconic. If only you knew that Bob Marley, your mother put up on that picture that they took that so fast as opposed to you who could hold it up there. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. How did you fall in love with dance and did you know that this was the thing that would be your calling? That wasn't a clear revelation to me because I was six when my mom put me in dance school with Marion Suget and Judamar School of Dance in Philadelphia and that wonderful history of turning out ballerinas like Dolores Brown, John Jones. I knew I had so much energy back then, just too much for everybody. But my parents went, okay, let's direct her this way. So um, that's how I got started. 
And that's without revelation of knowing this is what I'm going to do. That came much later. But yes, that gift. Some things, though, you know, right, that you eventually, gradually over that curve, you learn, oh, I'm pretty good at this. But that's gradual. You know, it's gradual. I read that before you started dancing, your father taught you piano and violin at a very early age. No, he didn't teach me violin. The school system of Philadelphia taught me the violin because mm. that's the days when, I don't know if it still exists now in the school system, but those are the days when the school system would give you instruments. <laughs> so I played everything, resonator bells and the violin. My brother played the clarinet because those instruments were given to him. But my father played classical piano. He also sang opera, not professionally. But he had studied where, I don't know. So I learned piano, yes. So my first lesson was a disaster <laughs> because I went in knowing too much with the wrong fingering and everything. <laughs> so I'm curious to know how much of your early music influences weighed upon how you approached dance throughout your life. To me, it's just very important that you understand music that you understand the nuances of music. And so that was like so natural to me that you would include what the musician was playing and let that become one with what you were doing. So playing an instrument enhances that, of course. And being surrounded by people who were into music and being in church on Sunday at Mother Bethel AME Church in my father was a baritone. My mother was a soprano. I was an alto and my brother was a bass perfect quartet without even trying to harmonize. You just did it. You know what I'm saying? But knowing how music is so alive and it's a part of what you're doing, you become the music. So important to understand that. When did it dawn on you that you wanted to be a professional dancer? Did something click for you? Uh, it dawned on me maybe... I don't know, two years into being with Ailey. What? Because Agnes DeMille had brought me from school in Philadelphia, which is now the University of the Arts, but it was called something different than a Philadelphia Dance Academy. And she had seen me in a class, brought me to New York. And so the first gig I had was at Lincoln Center. <laughs> I laugh every time I think of that. And then I ended up Dancing the Four Mary starring Carmen de Lavalade. And next thing I knew, I was out of a job and we ended up at the World's Fair because the pianist at American Ballet Theater, Martha Johnson, the late Martha Johnson, had two daughters and they were working at the log flume ride at the Texas Pavilion at the World's Fair. So she said, why don't you just go over there? So I worked there, still not knowing, you know, this is going to be a career. I didn't miss it at all. I was kind of going like, oh, yeah. And I became a member of the Ailey Company. I still didn't have that revelation because we were getting paid doodly squat. Alvin would, would give us little envelopes. And sometimes there might be a $20 bill in there. <laughs> there might be, this is for a week of rehearsal. Pre-union, right? Pre-union. No union. So you danced until somebody said, I'm hungry. We need lunch. Or I'm a little tired. Still not dawning like I can make a living out of this. Not when you're getting $20 an envelope. And sometimes just a thank you in the envelope, you know? But we took care of each other. Everybody fed each other, the whole thing. You know, artists take care of each other. So about two years in, I think, I'm on tour and I'm going like, gee, I like this. 
I like, even though it's hard as it can be, I still love this. I love the traveling. I love being around other dancers. It's like a little family because there was only like 10 dancers when I joined the company. So, so it kind of dawned on me late. Yeah. With it being so hard, I mean, becoming a professional dancer, what was it about dancing that you loved that made you stick with it? Because it was fun. It was fun. I was telling that you still can't find that original core of why you started enjoying it in the first place or doing it in the first Then I don't get it. I don't know why you're beating yourself up on it. You know, your body daily and doing performances and traveling and all that. I don't understand why you're doing it unless you can remember what that core thing is that made you do it. Then if you can make some money, oh, hey, <laughs> that's good. When you were really ramping up your training and learning all of these various techniques and trying to shape your body and really hone your instrument as a dancer, what do you remember? What was that like? When I was studying, you're talking about what was that like? I loved the discipline because I had Marion Suget for my first teacher. I just remember it felt so good to have that combining of excellent pianists. We had excellent drummers. They were so gifted and they made it so enjoyable to be moving <laughs> in a room, you know, with other people that were moving with you. And so it became a very, that's what I always say, a sacred space. Because what happens in there is something that is it's tangible in a spiritual way. So it, it just, it feels good, you know, even though it can hurt sometimes, but the struggle is so, I won't say rewarding because you don't always get your five pirouettes and get to jump as high maybe as you want to. You're learning. And I always loved learning how to do new things and the discipline. I depended on those musicians. That's how I know Chopin well. That's how I know Schubert well. That's how I know all the classical composers. And then in our school, when it came to listening to Duke Ellington or Count Basie, I had all that in one school. And then I had tap on top of that in this one school. And then Dunham classes with the drummers. I appreciated all this. Even though I didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of my life and all that, I hadn't put that together. But I just so enjoyed that ambiance that was in that room. When I would get home, I was so spoiled. My mother used to massage my legs. Wow. When I would finish a class, when I was really little, she had some combination of stuff. And she would be massaging her little girl's legs, you know, and making sure she's all right. So spoiled. Oh, God. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but that you see the smile on my face. It's just like, wow, that, that's so great memories. It just seems like such a rich upbringing, not only in dance, but in so many disciplines of the arts. Oh, yeah. And then there was art. There was painting and costumes. I mean, you look back, sometimes you go like, I wore that. <laughs> But at the time, it was, oh, my goodness, these were wonderful. And when I was a little kid, my mother sewed my costume. She was a great seamstress. But she would make your know, tutus. She would make everything. They were bejeweled. But everything was handmade on a sewing machine at home with a treadle. 
It wasn't even electric. But all of that, if you can imagine, and I know you can, all the things that go into making this magic happen and the preparation to make it happen was amazing. Is it true that you only had one audition in your entire life? When you auditioned for a Harry Belafonte television special with Donald McHale, what do you remember about that? It was a Belafonte special. I had one other audition in my life, but it wasn't an audition because I knew I was getting in. It was in Philadelphia. I did LaSalle College in Philadelphia. They used to have a summer theater. But this choreographer, Jean Williams, she was a local dance teacher, crazy woman. She was wonderful. And she wanted me in that South Pacific. When I look at those pictures now, I go like, oh, geez. coconut shells. Oh, my gosh. Then I'm going like, okay. But she choreographed this special thing that she just stuck it in there for me, right? The only other audition I ever had was that, was with uh, with the late Donnie McHale. And he was so kind to me. And did you get the job? No. <laughs> I did. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Because I was so focused on what I was doing. Plus, I was dressed as the ballerina girl, so I had my tights on. I had my leotard on. These were cotton leotards back then, folks. I had my ballet shoes on. <laughs> I was like the complete opposite of everybody else in the room. So I was very conscious of that. So I didn't really pay any attention because it was a small room and Mr. Ailey was sitting on this small staircase of like four steps to go to the next set of steps to go outside. So I didn't pay attention. And then I was so upset when I left that I went past him and it took me a minute or two, a beat or two, to realize that was him. I'd only seen him once before in Philadelphia with his eight-member company. What do you think Alvin Ailey saw in you? You know, that's a hard question because I, it's coming from him. I'm trying to remember some of the things he used to say about the look that I had. Small head, broad shoulders, long arms, long legs, right? And, God, I don't know. I, other than that, I don't know what little thing he saw in me because I was just doing the best I could. So what he saw was miraculous to me that he even saw something. But when cry... That famous solo when cried, which celebrated his 50th anniversary last year. I'm like, what, what he saw in me to do that was also a puzzle because, I mean, there's the extraordinary dancers that he was making stuff up on. Or with repertory, which is really wonderful to have so much repertory. But with all of that, what he saw to make this long piece I didn't find unusual. So when it finally did premiere, I didn't know what people were screaming. <laughs> I swear to you, I had no idea. I was tired. I almost didn't make it through it. Now everybody whips it off like this, like I could do it 10 times in a row. <laughs> but back then, that was my first time. So when all this adulation came, it was like weird to me. It was really weird because I'm going, well, it's another day. Got through it this time. Help me get through it the next time. And there were two people. Everyone forgets about the wonderful dancer, Connie Consuelo Atlas. Hmm. She was the understudy for it. We both learned at the same time, except the person that was learning was behind you. 
So he concentrated mostly on you. I didn't know. I had no idea what his concept of me was, except uh, not being as verbal. We didn't say much when we were in the studio. What was it like to work under Mr. Ailey's direction? What was he like as a choreographer? Well, um, since I'd done so many, all of us had done so many of his works, I'm thinking of, um, you know, the solo in Masquerade Langage. Didn't you do that one? Ooh, yes, I did. Ooh. Oh, uh, some solo, wasn't it? Something. I learned that in a closet. I literally mean a closet in 30 minutes. So that would either come out that way or it, he'd be pulling teeth and pulling out his hair for certain pieces. For Cry, he couldn't find the music for the beginning, the Alice Coltrane. He, he didn't have that music when we started this. So I'd say eight days it took him to put Cry together. But at the last minute, I mean, maybe the last two days, he found the beginning music. So the process was painful for him, not for us, for him. Dancers to this day sometimes don't understand body language. You cannot stand in front of a choreographer <laughs> with certain body language when they are struggling to give you a step. And it's not coming. <laughs> but we forget sometimes. I see you smiling. You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, wow. Ms. Jamison, this solo cry became one of the most important dances of modern and contemporary dance history. It's a, a cultural phenomenon. And the program note stated, dedicated to all Black women everywhere especially our mothers. Did you read this before you performed, or did you know about this program note? Mm -hmm. Didn't know a thing. I don't know when I finally read it. I, I don't have a remembrance of that categorically. All I remember is I didn't know anything. I hadn't gone through it from beginning to end. I didn't know any program notes. We had to sew a costume onto me. I had to use my wading in the water skirt, which is like tissue paper. I don't remember when I read it, but what I finally did I don't remember it going, oh, that's what it meant. Oh, I have to step up to this nerd. I was already stepped up in my dedication to do his work and carry his spirit onto a stage. Because you're, you're so entrusted as a dancer. You know what I'm talking about. You're dealing with somebody's soul. They entrusted you to take care of their spirit and present it to an audience. So you're the conduit. So you take pride in that and you... Work for it as hard as you can to be as honest as you can about being the transporter or the conduit of someone else's soul, you know? So that's what I was concerned about, is getting it done. And physically, just getting through the thing. I cannot tell you how my hat is so off to these dancers who do it now, starting with Donna Wood, who went into it right after me, Donna Wood would do, <laughs> she would do a piece before it. She would do Memoria before it and then do Cry, and then do Blue Sweet, and then do Revelations. I'm going like, okay, <laughs> I must have missed something. And beautifully done, beautifully done. No half-stepping, just, you know, no, no pacing. It was done. You got out there and did it. As far as raising Alvin's mantra to make sure that people understood how important historically this was. But you were representative 
of lifting the art form to a level that it hadn't been lifted to. So you, you had that, I wouldn't call it a struggle, but you did it every day that there was an aspiration that you had every day, every time you got on stage, you had a responsibility to your fellow dancers and of course to Mr. Ailey, but it was about lifting, always about lifting an audience and making them feel lifted in spirit and mind and body. And you had to do that with every piece, not just with revelations. Mm -hmm. Something that many people don't know or understand about the Ailey Company and its origins is that although he told American Black stories and really lifted Black culture, the company always consisted of dancers from many different backgrounds, of many different races. And I think this ultimately led to the idea that the Ailey Company is a cultural ambassador to the world. Everyone was welcome, as long as you were a fabulous dancer. He used to say, I don't care if you're purple or green or polka dot, if you can do the work, you're welcome. And that I always loved. Of course, he started the company with his friends who were predominantly Black. They were all Black because there were no outlets. There was no, no place for us to really say, hey, look, this is our artistry. This is our history. This is our culture. And guess what else we can do? <laughs> you know. So it was saying all that. And that, to me, was and still is the most important thing about what dance can do. Amen. What did it mean to you when Alvin Ailey passed the company to you? What did it mean? What did it mean to me to do that? Everything. <laughs> Everything. That's why I dedicated, uh, and I hate to say dedicated my life, dedicated my life. I woke up in the morning and I went like, this is the gig. Even through the transitions and that was really difficult when he died on us. That was so hard, but still it, it was not even a matter of keeping your head above water. It was winning the race. You're holding up something that you believe in, that you really believe in, that is nurturing for not just you and your culture, but for the rest of the world, which then you're responsible for making that connection. So dancing in the company and then, you know, uh, running it with the help of so many people, because there's, there's no way in the world that I could have done this by myself. When people say to me, oh, well, you did this and you did that. I said, let's put it this way. I was in the captain's seat <laughs> and I was responsible for liftoff. You don't do it by yourself. You just don't. And as much as I'd like to brow, <laughs> I always remember that. There are a slew of people that made this transition from Mr. Ailey to me that happened like that. I mean, it was, it was so fast. I knew what was coming. Mr. Chaya knew what was coming. Some of the dancers knew what was coming, that he was ill. But you're never ready for someone to transition. So it was like, okay. And people always ask me, what was that like? Was that hard? Was that? No, I was flying by the seat of my bed. I mean, you do what you have to do. And I remember 
not thinking, I've got to do this. Let me put this hat on and go forward and do that. That's not what I thought. This is in the natural rhythm of things, of experiences, of you ask me to do this, I'm doing it. So let's get it on. I am crying. I'm sad. I'm hurt inside. I want you here. Miss you. We love you. But you gave me a directive and you left a roadmap. So what was it like? He just left us so much that, of course, there's no question that you continue. It's not just the importance of Alvin Ailey. It's the, the importance of how you influence your fellow human being. You're responsible for that. I don't care what you do. You can be a secretary, you can be a dentist, you can be whatever. But how are you impacting those around you? And if you have a larger scale to do it on, go for it. And think about how you're impacting people to do the right thing. Yes, right. <laughs> You've seen so many thousands of dancers audition for Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. For you, what makes a dancer stand out from the rest? Like, what are you looking for? Well, as you well know, the first thing that stands out to me, and you well know, because a lot of people aren't expecting with the Ailey Company, I don't know what they're thinking. I have no idea that we just get up on stage and move for something. The first part of the audition, and then we hit them with what? A classical bar and center. And you should see what happens on people's faces. Some people are not prepared. They thought they were just going to breeze on through. <laughs> or when somebody shows up in something really bright. But if they show up with something really bright on, they either know what they're doing or they don't know what they're doing. They don't know. And then a lot of people get eliminated on the classical side of it because Alvin always wanted a, a classical bottom, modern top. He always wanted that. He wanted the clarity. It's so funny you say that because I used to always hear this phrase. I don't know if you've heard this before, that Alvin Ailey loved a dancer with church on the bottom and a party on the top. Had you ever heard that before? <laughs> no, no. But I've heard a lot of stuff, but... You know, one thing, I, I have to interject this. One thing that I appreciated about you instantly was that when I hired you for the company, you, you, weren't, you were not dilettantish about it. You actually studied Horton technique and you studied the techniques that you would need to do the repertory in its variety that we needed and also uh, contribute your dad's background, period, what you came with already. Uh, thank you. What I'm looking for in a dancer is I've got to see the love of what you're doing in there. And not artificially. I don't mean you get up there, put an automatic smile on your face or something when you're dancing. But th there's something in the eyes and the face and something that says, I love doing this. Even though I make it so many mistakes, I still love doing this. And then I'll give you a chance to either make more of a fool of yourself, but who cares? It's an audition. You're supposed to be nervous and all that. I looked for the real strength of I'm getting out here and I'm doing this. And I've been trained. I've been studying for this all my life. And I might be nervous. I'm still out here and I'm doing the best I can do. So I'm looking for the best you can do. And then sometimes the best you can do isn't ready yet. 
I'm looking for your real passion for what you're doing. And that passion backed up with, with great techniques, techniques, because you need a multitude of them now. You have to be able to sing, dance, and bake cakes. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved working with you in the studio. You have such a keen eye and musical ear, as we talked about. I was also completely intimidated by the challenges you set forth, but mostly I was in awe of your ability to pull out the best parts of a dancer and to really challenge them to grow. Do you have an intentional approach to coaching and passing on artistic information? No. <laughs> it was just doing with what I had in front of me. One thing that came to my mind when I'm rehearsing people, something Mr. Ailey said to me, nobody's going to be able to do it like you, period. You have to keep that in mind. You're rehearsing someone and give them full throttle as to what are they going to bring. <laughs> you know, that's hard. That's hard to do. I mean, you've rehearsed people before, right? Yeah, it's not always so easy. So. I really admire how you had the foresight and generosity to pass the baton to Robert Battle at the height of your leadership, making him the third artistic director in the company's history. It was done with a solid succession plan, attention, love, and all the grace that you hold. What made you feel confident in passing Ailey's legacy to Robert Battle? Because when I talked to Robert, I understood that he understood how important the legacy was and still is. And that he also was an innovator. I mean, I was bringing Robert's pieces into the repertory. Thank God for Sylvia Waters who was the first to bring uh, his pieces into the repertory. Robert, in a way, reminds me a bit of Alvin in that plays his cards close. He's quiet that way, right? Mr. Ailey was quiet that way. Except with Mr. Ailey, if you were doing something he didn't want you to do, he'd let you know. I think Robert does that too, but there is nothing like the Ailey touch. If you messed up, you would know. And it would only take a look or it would take a couple of words. Like, what was that? But Robert also is gentle and firm at the same time with dancers. He's an innovator for me with choreography because that's why I brought his work in in the first place. And he also understood that broader horizon that I was always talking about. There's more to see. There's more. There's another rung to climb. Open that space, that horizon. I love that in him. I love his sense of humor <laughs> and his love of dancers and his musicality because he can play some piano there. Mr. Juilliard graduate. He can play music and sing and all that. You just have to keep it lifted, period. There's no going this way or that way. You just go, oh. Yes, yes. Of all your professional accomplishments, dancing, choreographing, directing, building on Ailey's legacy, being incredible as you are, what is your proudest accomplishment? Well, there are a couple of things. You know, there's that one proud moment. I mean, in relationship to the building, I'm looking out a window that says, Alvin Ailey placed on the street, on 55th Street. We're inside what he wanted in the first place, and he just didn't get a chance to get there. So I helped get him there, along with Sharon Luckman and 
Michael Kaiser and dancers and staff and crew. So I'm very proud of that. But I think what really gets me going is when another dancer joins the company and they get it. They get it. That makes me feel good. I go to City Center season, Lincoln Center and all that. And I'm sitting in the audience and I'm like, just to see a dancer just blossom. I didn't see him that season, but then all of a sudden, whoa, wow, what happened? Well, they happened. They got it. And they're still getting it. When I see that blossom in a dancer, that they understand the Sankofa of everything, what's happening back there, what's happening in the future that they are creating. That gives me great pleasure. You see me smiling. Oh, I love you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And God bless you for doing the job that you're doing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Moving Moments. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up with future episodes, follow us on Instagram at Moving Moments Podcast and visit us at artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist's moving moments. <laughs>